actually quite a bit for my little window view onto how you're all doing. Now I see there aren't as many yogis walking past the window. I don't know. <laughs> but the ones who are, it's just pure ballet. Just wonderful tears are coming to my eyes. Breath, the body, the movement, no distractions at all. Wonderful. Did you hire a couple of people? <laughs> Doggy mind runs after the bone. Lion mind, unimpressed. When we left off, we were moving towards lion mind, exploring some of the ways in which that develops, uh, beginning to use the sutra itself, if you recall. the first two contemplations having to do with the quality of the breath, beginning with the length, but the length merely pointing to any of the different qualities of breathing. And as the practice unfolds, uh, even if it isn't mentioned, you can't help but notice that the breathing is a very rich universe that goes through quite a bit of change. In terms of depth, in terms of fineness, in terms of ease, freeness, in terms of how blocked it may be, whether it's a joy to breathe or not. We can't, begin, we can't help but also notice some of the causes, uh, what seems to bring about fulfilling breath, a breath that has some fineness, that's quite refined, and what, and what it takes to disrupt that, or to prevent it from happening. We also uh, can't help but notice how the breath affects the body and the mind. Right now, we're emphasizing more the body in these first four contemplations in the Sutra itself. We begin to notice that uh, the breathing is a very powerful conditioner of the body. And this is an important lesson for us to learn from these early contemplations. Let me give you a sense of what I mean by that when I say it's a conditioner of the body. The breath is a very powerful conditioner. Uh, Life as we know it is set in motion when we begin to breathe. If we don't at birth, you know, there's usually some... We get slapped or something and we start breathing. And when we stop breathing, that's the end of life as we know it. So, of course, the breath is a very powerful conditioner. Uh, And then we overlook it for the most part during the rest of our life between being born and dying. Sometimes we are reminded of it if we have an, an injury or a sickness or we get the wind knocked out of us, or we walk or run too much and we feel out of breath, or we get a a bad cold. But by and large, we take the breath for granted, much less so 
for us because we use it a lot. So one of the um, things that we begin to learn in the first and second is that as the breath goes, to a great extent, so goes the body and, of course, also the mind. The breath is a very powerful conditioner. Right now, let's just look at the body. And that uh, moves into the third contemplation, quite naturally. The third contemplation, I'm breathing in and I'm aware of my whole body. I'm breathing out and aware of my whole body. This is how the yogi practices. This particular contemplation is a very rich one and we don't have time to go into all of it. There are uh, quite a few ways, different methods that have developed over the centuries to work on this relationship between the whole body and the breath. Um, For our purposes, the main thing that we're interested in is how the the breath as a conditioner, that is, the breath is something that influences the body, uh, enables the body to more and more be a suitable vehicle for meditation. There are many other things that can be learned. We have to learn about, uh, we have to learn how to come to terms with the nature of the body. In Buddhism, that's very important. And in the Satipatthana Sutra, which parallels this, as, as I mentioned, there are a number of contemplations on the parts of the body, on, on death, uh, which have as their purpose, one of their purposes, uh, coming to terms with the true nature of the body. Here, for our purposes right now, we're mainly interested in seeing if we uh, have noticed that, let's say, as we our attention to the breathing becomes more continuous, That means there are fewer gaps in attention. More and more, we're able to be with the breath. We run after bones less. When we run after a bone, let's say early on when we first started out, we might be with that bone for 10 minutes or 10 hours before we realize that we've left the breath. Now, uh, we still run after bones, but... uh, our reflexes are changing. We, it's like an alarm goes off. Whoop. We notice it and then we, we don't stay with the bone as long. We come back to the breath um, more promptly and, and gracefully. And so as the breathing becomes more continuous, one of the things that the meditator learns is that simply by being mindful of the breath, the breath changes. We affect the quality of the breath just by attending to it not by controlling it. It's not, it, you could view it as Buddhist pranayama for those who know about yoga. But what I'm trying to say is it's not a form of controlling the breathing intentionally, but rather uh, we see that as we become conscious of the breath, that consciousness itself, without trying, changes the quality of the breath. And as a matter of fact, as a byproduct of our practice, it is a kind of breath therapy and can help with all kinds of ailments and improve the quality of breathing and, of course, give, give us more energy. Now we're coming into uh, what I'm getting at. So as we attend 
to the breath, we begin to see that the breath itself changes as we learn how to be intimate with it. As we become one with it, as we unite with it. As the breath changes, as it becomes perhaps deeper, as it becomes perhaps more fine, and as it becomes more calm, and then we move into the fourth, I'm breathing in and making my whole body calm and at peace. I'm breathing out and making my whole body calm and at peace. This is how the yogi practices. Let me take the third and the fourth together because the fourth grows out of the third, which grows out of the first and second. It's really just a very natural progression. As the continuity in attention develops, the breath, the quality of the breath changes as the quality of the breath changes in a direction of calm. It brings the body along with it. The body becomes more calm. So in the fourth one, we're not trying to, in any active way, induce the body to be calm. We're not suggesting that it be calm. We're not in any way applying a relaxation exercise at all. Simply by attending to the breathing, we make the breath calm, the breath becomes calm, and in the process, as that deepens, it begins to bring the body along with it. And this has important consequences. As this becomes deeper, as the breath becomes very, very calm, the body becomes very, very calm, and probably all of us have tasted some degree of this over the past few days. Even if it's just for a few moments, you've begun a process that will continue if you practice. But what can come out of it is that when the breath becomes uh, when an object that we can really be with for long periods of time, that is, our concentration starts to improve, to just put it in that simple way, not only does the breath become uh, calm, but the body settles down. Do you remember I mentioned... Uh, the ancients talked about acquiring a seat, that simply sitting down isn't really, you haven't acquired a seat yet. Acquiring a seat is when you really are established in your posture. Now, I'm not talking about us uh, becoming kind of West Point, uh, you know, the West Point meditators or some of the, in Japanese Zen sometimes, that a great premium is put on posture. It's certainly important and helpful. It's relative to yourself. You know, just you do your best. You get as comfortable and as upright as you can, whether in a chair or wherever, on a bench, a cushion. But what tends to happen is that you can now sit for longer and longer periods of time more comfortably. You can get into deep states of of, uh, concentration. I was going to say conversation. It's just the opposite. Unenlightened, heard what I was about to say and sabotaged it. Unenlightenment. Um, As the breath and the body, and of course, although I'm not emphasizing it for right now, the mind comes along as well. And the breath, the body and the mind unite and become one. And as that becomes deeper... Uh, you can sit for long periods of time 
uh, without pain, without discomfort. In the deep absorptions, uh, people sit for hours and even days, believe it or not. Now, this is not the end of the practice. For some people who have that capacity to enter into the jhanas that deeply, it can be useful. It can also be quite a trap, which we'll get into in a moment. When you can do that, when the body begins to settle down, when it can sit longer, when it can be more steady and comfortable, can you, uh, can you begin to see how you have a basis, let's say a physical basis, from which to begin to observe what comes up? Does it, uh, can you get a sense, maybe some of you have already experienced this, when powerful uh, moods, fears, loneliness, uh, pain comes into consciousness. Can you get a sense that if the body is planted, not rigid, planted, and it can come to that not by huge amounts of calisthenics or physical activity, although yoga, tai chi, and so forth can be helpful. A lot of it's mainly the mind. That you have a very, very powerful physical foundation from which to observe what's happening the ancients sometimes refer to it as a fortress. And so that when we're, uh, these energies, kind of a, what the Tibetans call emotional afflictions or mental afflictions, come to us, we have tremendous help in, sen- in the sense that the body is be- becoming more stable. And this continues to develop. I'm only going to take two more contemplations. We'll only go, I think, tonight into the... Uh, fifth and sixth. So the body has begun to become stable and now the fifth says, I'm breathing in and feeling joyful. This is PT. For those of you who know Pali, uh, I'm breathing out and feeling joyful. This is how the yogi practices. Then the sixth, I'm breathing in and feeling happy. I'm breathing, sukha. I'm breathing in and feeling happy. I'm breathing out and feeling happy. This is how the yogi practices. Uh, PT is sometimes translated as rapture. As the breath starts to become more concentrated, as the body becomes settles down, as the mind settles down, uh, more and more we're talking about the same thing because uh, by affecting the breath, the breath powerfully conditions both the body and the mind, and we have such simple access to the breath. So you see it's a very... It's efficient. I guess you could call it cost-effective. You know, by really coming in touch with the breath, you bring so much along with you because the breath is interposed between body and mind. It's between the psyche and the body. It's got that unique relationship. When we start to, uh, when the body starts to become very peaceful because the breath has become so peaceful, an image that might help you get a sense of it, of course, best is if, if you've already experienced it and eventually you will all experience it. Um, you will all experience it. <laughs> That's an order. Yeah. Can't speak that way anymore. Right? We have to be more permissive and allow. Okay. Think of on a hot day, if you have a cool drink, as you uh, drink the cool fluid and as it moves through the body, the body gets cooler. That's why we drink. 
uh, we take a cool drink or a hot drink on a cold day. It sort of spreads throughout the body. And so it has that effect. The breath is like that. As the breath becomes more fine, it spreads through the body. As that concentration develops, uh, the mind uh, becomes blissful, becomes, uh, enters into what is called rapture of varying degrees. It can be just a few moments, like a, a, a lightning flash. It can last for periods of time. It can permeate the entire body. It can be a feeling of buoyancy and lightness. It's a stimulating part of practice. It's, uh, there's some peace in it, of course. There's some calm in it. But that is subordinated to this uh, tingling. This it it's, uh, uh, affects the body and the mind. And then that naturally evolves. In other words, as the concentration... Uh, now the object of meditation, if you notice from the sutra, you now would be contemplating that. If, you ent- if any of you have entered uh, even a bit of, uh, let's say, rapture, very happy, feel- good feelings, uh, contentment, a liveliness, then switch your mindfulness to that while you breathe. Become aware of that. As you are able to do that, that quite naturally uh, what happens is that the PT starts to uh, fall away and you enter into a state of, of sukha, which is um, happiness. Sukha is different. It's soothing and peaceful. Now, uh, rapture is something that probably, we, if you haven't had it, or perhaps you've had it in other ways, other ways to gain rapture, uh, you like it and it's very positive. But relative to the sukha or the, the happiness that you come into, which is soothing and peaceful, um, it, isn't a, it isn't something you want to be with as much. Finally, it becomes suffering. A while back, uh, during one practice period, uh, there was a very, I had very strong piti. And was, of course, very, uh, the ego got very happy and uh, my commitment to the practice became uh, strong, uh, bigger than a mountain. Uh, was, but then at a certain point, you get fed up with it. Okay, I've had enough rapture. <laughs> you, can't, you can't stand it, really. One ancient image is that rapture is like a traveler who's been in the desert and has had no water. And then suddenly they come upon some water and they just get so excited and start slurping it up and uh, it's a good feeling. Then it comes to an end. But sukha, which it evolves into, is more the, the happiness after you're content now, really content. You've had, you've had as the water that you need and you're now relaxed. And it's something like that. Now, uh, what I've been tra- uh, tracking, if you recall yesterday we talked about vitaka and vichara, that is the uh, factors of mind that aim attention to the object, in this case the breath usually, or so far it's mainly been the breath, aim attention to the breath, and then vichara, that capacity to keep it there. Those two, plus what we've been talking about, the, the piti and sukha, 
uh, now take on a fifth because when the mind is, is uh, that happy, uh, the need to control, the need to bring it back to the breath and all of that, uh, it's almost eliminated, if not eliminated, because there's no need to go hankering after other things. There's enough happiness right in the moment. And then the mind settles into what is called ikagata, one-pointedness. And that's a deep state. It's the beginnings of, uh, of the jhanas, of the absorptions, where the, uh, when it gets developed, it's just knowingness. You just you either you go through the breathing, you leave the breathing behind. There are no other objects really. There's just knowingness. It's, it's sort of knowingness, knowing itself. I'm just mentioning this a little bit. Uh, actually, in terms of the retreat, some of you have, have written notes wanting to know if you're in the first jhana or the second jhana, etc. For the purposes of the retreat, it's really best to not emphasize that and I'm going to pull back from what I said because that just uh, activates the comparing mind. If you're becoming calm, fine. Just uh, soak in it. Soak it up. Allow that calmness to just operate. Let it nourish you. Let it uh, be fulfilling. Let it provide you with happiness. And then when it lapses, as it does, as it comes to an end, then investigate. Then bring attention and become a spider and look at what's happening. Okay. Um, you can see now where the lion is not a bad image for what we're talking about. Just even think of the lion, it's often referred to as seated as if on a throne. It's stable. When the mind begins to tap some of what has been mentioned here, and there are varying degrees of it, of intensity of it, even a little bit of it, can you see how you have the beginnings of a foundation from which to become aware of whatever turns up? That now you have acquired a seat. That is, the physical body is more stable. It can sit more comfortably and longer. When it feels as if it's being assaulted by certain emotions and memories and so forth, apprehension, fears of the future, when that comes, we have a decided advantage. If the body, uh, if you've acquired a seat in that sense. Now, at the beginning, uh, the Buddha talks about entering into the lotus posture, which is a very balanced posture once you master it. It's very stable and balanced. But don't get caught up in that. Because finally, the stability I'm talking about is largely the mind. Sure, we need the body. We work through the body and with the body. It's important to care for the body. But unless the mind gets very, very concentrated like this, it's not going to bring the body along in a way in which it's so fruitful, so helpful. Probably you could train uh, some people who are just very good physically, maybe a, I don't know, a circus performer to sit in full lotus for hours, days for all I know. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything. So finally, what we're talking about is for the mind to be sitting in full lotus. Even if you sit on a chair, it doesn't matter. The key thing is for the mind to develop the kind of stability. And here I'm emphasizing the physical support as well, which does, it helps. So that we get ready for the next step, which is when we move into the, the spider, uh, the vipassana proper, looking at things 
as they arise and, and pass away. But before we do that, I don't know if I mentioned it, but when we said, when we attain lionhood, I think I mentioned, if not, I'll do it now, that itself, the lion itself becomes a bone, can become a bone. That is, highly concentrated states can become quite problem, problematic. And the literature from ancient times till the present are full of examples. At this point, it can be very helpful to have a friend, a spiritual friend, a teacher, whatever, someone who's traveled this road. Here's why. If you get really good at getting concentrated, you can drop into these absorptions and they're very, very wonderful states. You are extraordinarily happy. There's great peace. There's great calm. There's great serenity. There's a higher happiness, perhaps probably higher than what we've known. And it has nothing to do with how the world treats us or how the weather is, whether we have a lot of money or a little money, how, what our age or what our health is. It's intrinsic to the being. It's there. And it's very helpful to even taste a little of that. Uh, if you taste more than a little, then the problem that comes up is that it's, it's automatically attachment. It's not maybe you'll get attached. <laughs> no. There's no way not to get attached. It's impossible. It's so, it's so pleasant. That's the whole point. Naturally, attachment gets, uh, comes about when pleasant things visit us. We want them and we want to hold on to them. So there's a certain kind of dilemma. Uh, we get trapped in the cave of silence. You get very silent. And different problems come about from it. Some of them, the outside, so-called outside world, becomes even more objectionable. You think it's a difficult life when you go back to New York City. If you taste this state, New York City will seem uh, it's incomparably worse. Can be, if you get attached to this. Because now you'll have created a, a real dichotomy and you can become a kind of non-hospitalizable schizophrenic <laughs> where the only place to be happy is in that place. To fold your legs, get concentrated, follow that breath, and boom, there you are. And you can get so good at it that you can enter into it at will and stay as long as you wish. It's like pushing the button on an elevator. You can just drop into it. Okay, it has its uses, of course. I, you know, some of them are obvious. So the danger is... Here is finally what it boils down to. There's no way that you want to start looking at your stuff once you get that happy being concentrated. Why would you want to look at your suffering? You just found, you found paradise. And then the, perhaps the teacher will say, okay, you know, okay, that's great, that's wonderful. And now it's time to look at impermanence. Now it's time to see that there's uh, the emptiness of self. Uh, do you have any more fear? Do you have any more attachment to anything? You don't want to do it there can be a great reluctance to the Vipassana part of the partnership to carry that out. And so uh, skillful teaching uh, is necessary. You can do it yourself. One of the main ways to uh, protect yourself, of course, if you understand that, the, the, that wisdom is the, is the crown jewel, wisdom needs concentration. But wisdom is, the, is why we're here. It's wisdom that really liberates. The ancients used an image that is the concentrated mind is like cutting the grass 
wisdom is like uprooting the grass. If you cut the grass, that's nice, but it grows back. So let's say you enter into this state of deep calm. And maybe you were a fool to begin with. When you, when you come out, you're still going to be a fool, only a very calm one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are people like this. Okay. Okay. So one way to protect ourselves is, uh, this is a classical way, and it, it's to take a look at that state itself. And as you observe it, of course, it comes to an end. So you begin to see that it's impermanent. It doesn't have the power to confer absolute fulfillment. It isn't the unconditioned. It isn't enlightenment. It isn't a whole bunch of other words that sound like that. Uh, Another way to learn about it, which is another way of saying the same thing, is, of course, it comes to an end, and then there's a lot of suffering. The suffering comes from trying to get back to it until you become very proficient Uh, you don't always get back to it. And then you grasp for it and you do all kinds of things, which adds a striving note and an unpleasant note and a suffering note to the practice. So what we're trying to develop is a fluidity of mind, uh, which enables us to drop into concentrated states of whatever depth, because they're tremendously helpful. the nourishment that comes from it, the lightening of the heart that comes from it, uh, enables us to carry out the journey. We all have heaviness in our heart. We've all been wounded. Now, if you can drop into a state where there's some peace, even temporarily, for just for a while, when you come out of it, you're much more able to then take a look at what, what, it, what needs to be looked at. We each have our own. We all know what we have to look at. Uh, the first time I got a, an inkling of this, it struck me as quite hilarious. That is, uh, oh, I get it. These teachers and these books and the Buddha, they're all trying to help me get concentrated enough so that I can get happy enough so that I can look at my suffering. <laughs> In a way, there's some truth to that. There's uh, a certain amount of happiness that you have, uh, and the letting go, of course, is, made, is a lot easier. When we cling to things that are coming up in the mind, uh, often it's because we think that's the only way we can get satisfaction. As you begin to taste a kind of happiness that's internal, intrinsic, that's part of our nature, that has nothing to do necessarily with how we're treated by people and events, we become less beggar. We become less of a beggar. A beggar in this sense. If the only... uh, Initially, most of us are brought up to think that happiness comes from outside of ourselves. That the more we can accumulate of whatever, money, sex, power, people, titles, it doesn't, you know, you tell me, whatever it is you like. If we can get that, a good place to live, then we will be happy. And relatively speaking, of course, there's some truth to it. But then we begin to find out that those things are pretty shaky not only do they not deliver the kind of happiness that we thought that we were told they would, but also they don't last. They're quite fragile. One of the main sources of, of the suffering is that we keep looking into other people's eyes to find out how we're doing. I'm okay, right? 
yeah, yeah, you're okay. You're handsome, you're beautiful, you're intelligent, you're a great meditator. Whew, thank you. <laughs> Five minutes later, I'm okay? Am I, am I okay? Yeah, yeah, you're still okay. Maybe ten minutes later, no, you're not okay. <laughs> finished. All that work is finished. So we're incredibly vulnerable. We're incredibly vulnerable. We're, we're going through life trying to find out how we're doing. And everyone's telling us how we're doing or we're thinking that everyone is. Mostly they're thinking the same thing. They don't really care. But <laughs> Now what if we found that there was a source of happiness already in us, accessible from the practice, from devotion to the Dharma, that doesn't have to do with that. So if you taste even a little bit of that, it, you, you stop being so much of a beggar. The, the attachments loosen up a little bit. The cravings loosen up a little bit. We understand that we're okay. We're okay. And of course, depending on how deeply you go, you can find that you're quite okay. Again, it's not to then uh, turn your back on the world, but in a way to learn how to live in the world for the first time because you come to it as a person with some dignity and some self-acceptance. Not so much from trying to talk yourself into it, but it, it's, it's just there. It's our birthright. But it has to be tapped. It's not an ideology. It's not a belief. Uh, it's something that's there, but has, it has to be experienced. So that should the lion get quite stuck on him or herself as being this wonderfully concentrated entity and not want to do anything else, that becomes a bone in itself and it becomes uh, something that has to be let go of. Uh, it's not that concentration is the problem, but it's the attachment to it that is. Okay. Let's start to... Uh, before we move into the, uh, the spider sitting in the web and more some of the Vipassana issues. Let's start to look at some of the, uh, the benefits of what, what can happen with a concentrated mind. Uh, getting ready to do the, uh, the work of, of looking at the way things are, we have already mentioned that you need that. But look, here are some benefits, even before we do uh, um, other benefits, we've already mentioned some, before we even uh, move into insight work. Let's say um, you have begun to develop some concentration. uh, And things come up in the heart that are painful, very painful. Before we, uh, I don't think most people, when part of your education, did you know about shamatha and samadhi when you grew up? And <laughs> no one told me about that in grade school. I never heard of it. I never heard that it was possible to take a certain training to get the mind concentrated and what, how, how valuable that was. Okay. When we begin to develop some concentration, some, now storms rage in the heart. There's certain kinds of very, very painful feelings that come up. Uh, and maybe we're not able to look at them right now. We have a, no, a new option, which we didn't have before. And that is we can switch to the breathing. In switching to the breathing, and as you get concentrated, 
you drop into that, that state, what happens is you have a way of short-circuiting what before was a kind of inevitable suffering that you had to do because there's no other way out of it. We did have other ways which are similar, like if you're suffering, uh, you're, you do movie samadhi or you do eating samadhi or you do reading book samadhi. It's the same principle. You know, you take your mind off it. But this is much more efficient and much more effective. Moreover, you know, it has some transfer value into, into something else that go, that's quite profound. So you can switch into the breath. Not only do you have some relief, and there are times where we do need to pull over to the side of the road, that as the assault is too much, there's too much coming at us. And no matter how much we hear about, watch it and observe it, there are times where we can't. And so if we can get concentrated, it's like giving it a rest. We can drop into that state, nourish, nourish ourselves, nourish the heart, the chitta. And not only when we come out are we more fit then to look at it, but a little of the, the negative states, they've weakened a bit. They've weakened because we haven't practiced doing them. That is, if you have a certain amount of, let's say you get attached to despair a lot. Whenever despair gets up, comes up, you, you can never observe it. Despair comes up, just catches you right away. Well, then we keep strengthening that. We keep planting more despair seeds, more loneliness seeds, more fear seeds. If we can short-circuit, it's like changing a channel, switching to channel breath from channel loneliness. Although we haven't cured loneliness, we haven't cured despair, we're not strengthening it either. We're now strengthening mindfulness. Remember, every moment that you're mindful, you're planting mindfulness seeds so that the tendency to be more mindful in the future is increased. Okay, let me uh, finish with uh, one tradition, one tradition's way of working with samadhi. Uh, Corrado and I trained a bit in the Thai forest tradition with uh, Ajahn Mahabua, a very great teacher. And in that lineage, here's one way they develop samadhi. It's not done anymore because there are virtually no more, no more tigers in uh, Thailand. <laughs> you already understand. Uh, one of the ways of practice, and obviously it's not for beginners, you have to really be ready for this. <laughs> the tigers are waiting for beginners. <laughs> Is that you would do your walking meditation right on the fringe of where the tigers roam. Okay. Now, walking meditation, uh, and I would suggest some of you might improve your walking meditation outside if you set up a track for yourself, just as it is inside. Some of you are, you know, strolling around and some of you are getting more concentrated doing that. It's fine, but it can help to set up a track of like 20 or 30 paces. And that's how they do it in this particular uh, tradition, lineage. And what you do is you do the walking meditation, much as we are doing it, uh, about 20 or 30 paces. You go from one end of the track to the other and you turn around, you come back and so forth. Now, here's where it becomes interesting. If you have fear, and sometimes you can, according to these stories, I do not know this one personally. Okay. Uh, I did ask one of my teachers, uh, Ajahn Sawat, who had done it, and he described 
some of what it's like. Okay. So you're walking on this track back and forth, walking or walking with your breathing. And naturally, there's a tendency, tendency to be afraid. Now, if, you lo- if you're very, very concentrated, let's say on your breath, as you're doing this, you will be contained. What the, the tigers go for is if you get afraid, then they start to think something's wrong. If you're afraid, they, uh, you create the situation that you don't want. And you go from being a yogi to being a meal. <laughs> in, in one step. Okay. So if you can manage fear, and the situation, remember, is designed to produce fear, and that's the whole point. So you don't... They were, these were very, very experienced meditators. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't dream of trying it. So one of the things they do is they use samadhi. That is, they develop samadhi this way because, in a sense, your life is literally hanging breath by breath. As you stay with the breathing, you're able to sustain that kind of attentiveness, attentiveness which doesn't arouse fear and so, you, so that you're safe. Uh, the other way that they to get us warmed up to what's coming is that you, if, if fear even begins to turn up, you use vipassana, and there your vipassana is very, very strong. And you go right into it, and so the fear dissolves as it gets investigated. And there's a third way, very moving way, which uh, uh, Ajahn Sawat mentioned to me. He didn't do it, but he described uh, a meditator who did. Uh, His way was uh, one time he actually was face-to-face with a tiger. The tiger was looking at him, and he was looking at the tiger. And what he did was... um, not metta, it was karuna, compassion. And what he kept feeling very, very deeply in his heart, and this too is a samadhi practice, the stronger your concentration, the deeper you can arouse the feeling of compassion. He was looking at the tiger and saying, you and I, we're brothers, sisters in dukkha, in suffering. We're born, we get old, we get sick, we die. And he just uh, looked at the tiger with just incredible compassion uh, and a feeling of oneness that we're, we're in the same boat. You know, I understand. We both, uh, we're walking the same path. And in sending that out, no problem. So if you think you have it hard here at IMS. <laughs> Can we have a moment's silence, please? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. May such clear, may such clear, direct seeing 
free us from all forms of limitation.